Happy Thursday, and welcome to episode 42 of the Food Biz Whiz podcast. I'm so excited to welcome my guest, Cameron McCarthy, to our show today to talk about scaling your packaged food business, working with brokers and distributors, and getting your brand on retail shelves. Cameron brings seven years of sales experience, where he was responsible for over $40 million in retail and food service sales during that time, to his current company called WeStock. You'll hear more about WeStock from Cameron, but here is the gist of it. WeStock is a platform that helps emerging brands get on store shelves faster by streamlining the traditional customer request process and providing affordable consumer data to brands. I am pumped on WeStock, and I know that you'll be too after learning from Cameron. So without further ado, I am excited to get Cameron's perspective on what he learned most during those seven years of working with national brands and his insight on what he sees the most successful foodpreneurs doing these days through WeStock. Let's get to it. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Ali Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. Hey, Cameron, great to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Me too. So I briefly talked about your background in the intro, but I want to hear it straight from you. Can you tell us a bit about how you got started in the food industry and what led you to founding WeStock? Yeah, of course. So my whole family is actually in the fashion industry. So kind of growing up, I thought that that was going to be the path I was going to take. It was the path of least resistance. And I kind of, that's where all my contacts were. But um, they started me very young on the sales side of things. So 14, 15, 16, I was making calls for the family business to Macy's and Target and Dillard's and all those traditional stores. And I just didn't like it. Uh, I didn't like, uh, you know, selling (laughs) women's handbags just didn't get me up in the morning, get me excited and (laughs) college and uh, was a waiter all throughout college, knew I loved food uh, and beverage industry, but always thought that if you were going to be in the food and beverage industry, that meant you were going to work in restaurants, Um, but I hated the hours. I didn't like, you know, getting off at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning and just, uh, you know, wanted to find something else. So during that awkward transition period of kind of right after college, um, decided that I really wanted to take the plunge in the food and beverage industry, uh, but wanted to do something outside of uh, working at a restaurant. So applied to probably over 100 jobs, took the first one that I got, which was actually at a local seafood distributor uh, Hmm. here in New Jersey. That was one of the largest seafood distributors uh, in the tri-state area. And uh, if you're going to start in the food and beverage industry, (laughs) uh, the seafood industry is probably not where you want to start. Thousands of SKUs, very difficult very difficult hours as well. Yeah. Um, but during my time there, we launched a, um, a frozen line, uh, consumer packaged good brand uh, called Nautical Foods, which eventually fizzled out. But that whole process of developing uh, a food product for grocery stores, um, that's when I really found my passion. I said, okay, this is the part of the industry I love. Uh, I loved uh, conceptualizing what the product would look like. I loved putting together the marketing plan. Uh, but most importantly, I love being able to see the product get on the shelf and that fulfillment of seeing the product that you've been working on for months and years, seeing on the retail shelf, seeing the consumer feedback on it, um, and eventually seeing the reorders come through. Um, I wanted to work uh, for a little bit more of a higher end brand. So I ended up working for chocolate brands uh, called Fine and Raw out of Brooklyn mm-hmm. uh, a little while. 
uh, really learned the importance of merchandising and, and how to succeed at the store level uh, during my time there. Uh, but the, the scalability of that brand just wasn't there. So that's kind of when I uh, caught on as a sales director for a company called Delighted Buy. Uh, during my time there, we were able to make it, um, as a sales director, we were able to get it to be in the fastest growing uh, hummus brand in the country. Uh, it was a great experience. It really kind of allowed me to put all of my sales experience um, at the forefront. And then um, decided to, uh, although it was a great experience and I was able to learn a ton, it just brought up a ton of pain points and a lot of issues. About yeah. The- yeah. And that's kind of what led me to you know, now today, um, about a year and a half into starting this venture called WeStock. Cameron, I've got a couple of questions before we start talking about WeStock. But the first one is, how do your parents feel now that you, you know, kind of came full circle? Like you used all that experience like from the family business and applied it to, you know, what you're doing now. How how does your family feel about it? Yeah, I think they're. I think they're obviously happy that I found something that uh, I liked, and I got out of the kind of family loop of uh, of the fashion industry. I think yeah. the biggest thing that I learned from them is making calls as a teenager to Macy's buyers and to Dillard's <laughs> buyers. Like you get very hardened quickly, and yeah. you get chewed out, and you get you know, there's no fear in making cold calls anymore when you're doing it at that young of an age. Yeah. So for me, I think it helps me just like whenever I start something, I, I just think big, and so yeah. because that's kind of the way my family always trained me to do do it. And so, I mean, I remember starting at the seafood industry, I, I felt like I was very close to losing my job there because I wasn't getting the sales that I, you know, I was accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And I started reaching out to larger accounts, was able to net us HelloFresh, which was our oh, by cool. far account after that. And uh, we ended up doing about $2 million a year in business with them alone. And so, you know, for them, I think they're happy that I was able to, to find something that I actually enjoyed. Uh, but I'm, I'm forever indebted for them teaching me the sales side of things and, and making me very fearless on that side of it. Yeah, I'm sure they're they're proud of you. Uh, the next question I have for you, Cameron, is I wonder if you and I overlapped when you were at Fine and Raw and I was managing chocolate and confections at Byright. We haven't talked about this, but um, that would have been, gosh, for me, that would have been like 2009, 2010, 2011 at Byright 18th Street. Were you there at that time? No, I was definitely there a little bit later, gotcha. but I think we still had you as a customer when I was there. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I remember taking reorders and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, um, you know, selling a $10 chocolate bar is definitely difficult, but yep. it was, it's like still today, it's the best product I've ever sold yeah. um, or none. And it's, it's, I think the product that I've worked for that I think will be here in like 20 to 30 years still. Um, and there's a level of like craftsmanship about that brand that is like, it's, it, you feels you with so much pride selling it. Yeah. And yeah. Still, it's like, it's very difficult to eat a different chocolate bar. Um, yeah. It's like, yeah. I can't, you know, sit back and relax and enjoy a Hershey's. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. They've ruined you for life. Fine and raw has absolutely made you a little bit, a little bit jaded. Yeah. Okay. Well, we no, then the perils of the chocolate industry, you from the, yeah. from the sales side. So that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. Um, Okay. So we don't have that in common, but so then you worked for Delighted Buy. And so if people don't know what that is, you said it was the, what did you say? The fastest growing hummus company in the U.S.? Yeah. So I believe now that title is probably to Ithaca, which is also just an awesome product. But um, during my time there, we, we were the fastest growing hummus brand in the country. Uh, we were the ones to kind of blame for the chocolate hummus movement. So the first <laughs> dessert hummus on the market a very easy sale because the deli department doesn't see a lot of innovation. And plus yep. we've discussed this before. Uh, what you always want as a salesperson is an item that's an incremental sale. So something yep. that's not going to take any business away from the products that are already in the set. 
And so being able to sell a chocolate or vanilla hummus, although it was very weird and interesting, the buyer the buyers knew it wasn't going to take any business away from their hummus uh, that was garlic and roasted red pepper flavors. So it really did allow us to scale pretty quickly. Uh, plus the brand had Shark Tank kind of at its back. Mm. So that really helped uh, on the marketing side as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so then you alluded to the fact that you saw all of these pain points and challenges and you were like, there's got to be a better way. I want to start my own business. I want to start this this company, WeStock. Can you talk about some of those pain points that you saw and like a little bit more about what WeStock is for my listeners who have never heard of you before? Yeah. So everything kind of came to head the first week or two while I was at Delighted By. Um, you know, we were obviously, we were on Shark Tank on a Sunday that Monday in the in the following days, I mean, we just saw a flood of customers asking us, you know, where they could find our product, how they could support us, when they when we were going to be available at their local store, and it was very frustrating because we didn't have a way to capture that demand that was coming in, and then effectively show that demand to the retail buyers. So we did kind of what everyone does: we put a paper form on our site and we told people to fill it out and and bring it into their local store which sounds very outdated and it is, <laughs> but it is the way that you, you still make product requests. Yep. Um, yep. Absolutely. Now. And so I was, we were surprised by two things. One, it actually works. Uh, and we, we opened up, I remember Safeway East, which is about 170 plus stores because two people went into the deli department, handed in a form and asked for our product. And so when you get calls from buyers asking for you, uh, you know, asking to stock your product, that's always the dream as, as a salesperson. And so I was, just, I was just shocked by the fact that this was actually working. But two, we had a lot of consumers that were just like, I'm not going to do that. Like that, is like that just seems like a lot of work for me to fill out this form, print it out, and then go into the store, awkwardly find the store manager, and then yep. open this product gets stocked. Yep. So for me, I was like, there has to be a better way. So we launched this product, uh, this company, uh, February of last year. And at a very high level, what WeStock does is we allow consumers to vote on products that they want to see at their local stores. Yeah. And we do that by streamlining the product request process. So really, any point when you engage with consumers as a brand, whether it's online or offline, we're there to see, okay, where does that customer shop? What product are they interested in? A host of other data points about that customer. And then we turn that into sales data for you and your team. So you're able to see, okay, we've got 50 people who want to see my product at Target. We've got 100 people who want to see our product at Walmart. We've got 20 people who want to see our product at Whole Foods. And starting a conversation with a buyer around, hey, I have 20 customers who shop at your store and want to see my product is a much better conversation starter than, hey, I'm the 50th kombucha brand you've heard from this week. Here's my story. Here's what makes me different. That doesn't move the needle for the buyer, but that consumer demand does. And we've seen a lot of traction since. And, and so far, we've, I think we've captured close to 100,000 requests. We work with about 250 brands and uh, it's, it's been a pleasure every day working on it for sure. Wow. Congratulations, Cameron. That's a, that's a lot of success in just over a year. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's been super fun. So it's easy when it's fun. Yeah. I also love, like you said, you, so you've got the sales side, I've got the buyer side here. And for, for listeners who are skeptical about this, I'll just say, I wish that when I was a buyer, I wish that more producers would have come to me with hard data about how their product was going to drive sales in my store. Someone had walked in the door with, you know, whether it's printed out or if it's, you know, in an email that, that stat, that, I don't know, three people, 10 people, gosh, like you said, 50 people are requesting that item at my particular store. I mean, that's a no brainer for me. Yeah. 
Okay. So I, you know, I can't say it enough. I wish that when I were a buyer that people used hard data to pitch to me. And so I know Cameron, we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the call today, but first off, I, I want to talk a little bit more on a high level. And I want to talk about this idea that you have seen <laughs> so many emerging brands succeed on the retail shelf. And you have seen those that just flop or those that succeed for a while and then end up flopping after a few years. Can we talk a little bit about what connects those, those really successful brands? What commonalities you've seen among brands that succeed and the brands that don't? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's, it's two things. And I think I see it even more. I mean, I, um, with WeSock now and, and just how much we talk to brands. And then, you know, unfortunately, even through the life cycle of a year, we've seen some companies fizzle out already. So it's, it's definitely there. There's two commonalities I usually see with, with brands that succeed. One is they're very thoughtful about their growth. Um, that doesn't mean you're prioritizing sales over everything and you're trying to get into every store possible. That means you're very focused on these are the retailers that are, that are really a perfect fit for our product. Um, it usually means I'm going to dominate my region before I go to a different region mm -hmm. and really understanding that um, the focus needs to be on sales, but it doesn't necessarily mean like we need to add, you know, 300 stores uh, this year. It's more, we need to add 75 and they need to be the correct stores. Um, I think that's one. And then two is prioritizing velocity. Um, so velocity is obviously, you know, the sell through at the store level and, and your product uh, continuously being reordered by that store. And so what I see is that brands that are in smaller amount of stores, uh, but are pr prioritizing same store growth and velocity at those stores are going to be much more successful than the brands that are, okay, this year they're in 500 stores, next year they're in 5,000 stores, 10,000, 20,000. There's very few stores, uh, brands that can succeed that way unless they have immense amounts of capital behind them, which some of them do, and that's great. But for the everyday brand um, that a lot of them are bootstrapping this, uh, you have to really prioritize velocity. You have to make sure that you've got a good level of sell-through and you understand consumer uh, kind of tendencies at the store level before you go and move on to a different region or a larger retailer. I think the biggest pitfall I see with a lot of brands is, oh, wow, the Sprouts buyer reached out to us or the Target buyer reached out to us. Like We're going to now yes. overextend ourselves in year two or year one uh, because this buyer is showing interest. And so I fundamentally think that the way that we go and, and launch food brands is, is broken because what we do is usually the retail buyers reach out to us or we'll reach out to them and, and we'll get some amount of interest and then we'll go into that store and then we're going to throw money at that store and hope that our product sticks. Uh, the way we think that it should be long-term and, and what we're trying to do here at WeStock is we think that you should really build up your tribe and your, and your consumer demand in an area, target what store that those people shop at and then strategically launch in those stores, understanding that you already have customers in that area who are going to support you. Yeah. Um, so really, those are the two things that I think that are that make brands really successful. Again, being thoughtful about their growth and prioritizing velocity. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Cameron. I see this all the time too that people people get so excited about the potential of expansion, you know, outside of their region or you know across country, and so they say yes to any opportunity that comes across their desk only to wake up six months later and realize that the product isn't moving off the shelves that they're on. They have no real relationships with those buyers or the stocking team. They don't know how their product's doing on shelf and they don't have the, the bandwidth to support all these accounts that they've 
magically achieved. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the old adage of it's easy to get on the shelf. It's hard to yep. get off the shelf. I mean, it's, it, it, it's really, really crucial that you're focusing on, you know, how you're going to succeed once you open up that store, making sure that your customers are there and not overextending yourself. Um, you know, it's, I think a good metric is, you know, doubling your store count a year is, is probably where you want to be at, but anything mm-hmm. over that is, is probably overextending yourself. Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a lesson in retail ready. That's all about getting that first order and using, or that first, excuse me, that first reorder and using that as a benchmark for how quickly your product's moving off the shelf and how well you did with onboarding that, that new, that new retail account and the, all the staff and the people behind it who can be excited about your brand when you're not there. Um, yeah, I think like the the data point that I always tell brands look at, look at is um, you know sales per SKU per store per week. Yep. That you're drilled down on on what that is, right? So if it's eight, and the industry you know in the category average is six, you're doing great. But if the category average is ten and you're at eight, okay, how do you figure out how to get to that ten or higher number? So really drill down on that number, and the buyers will will be impressed. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell that you've had experience on the sales side. I love it, Cameron. So, so we might have listeners tuning in and they're like, okay, great. Like I, I am on board. I'm going to stick to my region. I'm gonna, I'd rather go narrow and deep, but how do I do it? Like, should I, should I look at new retailers first? Should I be picking up a broker or distributor? Like what, what's the, What's the strategy there? Have you seen any successful paths that that brands tend to go down? Yeah, I mean, it's always everyone always says it's like chicken or the egg, like retail. Yeah. I I don't view it that way. I think you focus on the the retailer first, and then yeah. the retailer will usually guide your conversation with that distributor, um, and that's usually the way you want it. One, it's going to allow you to really speak from a a point of strength when you go to approach that distributor. Um, and, and that anchor account is going to allow you to, to kind of dictate the terms a little bit more than if you go to the distributor and then hope to open accounts off that distributor, which is very tough. Yeah. I would say try to self-distribute as long as possible. Uh, you really want to focus on independence and small to medium chains that you can self-distribute to as long as possible. Try to stretch that out to like 100 stores yep. in the beginning. And then, you know, go try to find a local DSD um, to take over those accounts for you so that you can streamline the process, uh, go out and find an anchor and then, you know, start to approach the UNFIs and the KEs of the world, but really focus on the retailer and then the distributor. Um, and then on the point of the broker, I, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a big proponent of, especially as the founder, uh, you need to be able to get your brand to a certain threshold of sales on your own. Uh, because if you can't sell your brand, I don't think really anybody else is going mm-hmm. to be able to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So usually the threshold is, you know, a million dollars. That's a little bit high, but usually if you can't get your brand up to a million dollars in sales on your own, um, there, there's some sort of issue there. Um, in terms of brokers, we have a ton of brokers we actually work with at WeStock. And unfortunately in the broker market, there are a lot of bad actors. Yeah. Uh, I would say when you are ready for a broker, the biggest thing to look at is their field team. Uh, if you're going, if a broker is just, you know, you know, Jim and Bob and they're in the middle of the country and they've got one retailer that they work with and that's the whole team, uh, I would probably stay away. Yep. Um, but there's, you know, there's there's awesome brokers all across the country that have really strong networks of field teams that make sure that there's somebody in the store checking on your product on a weekly basis. And they're in the store uh, meeting with the category managers on a monthly basis. And so 
those are usually um, you know the brokers that I would tell people to work with and, and try to find a broker again stay away from upfront fees really find a broker that's going to work with you on a commission basis and believes in your brand yeah I agree with you there and I think one of the one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking here Cameron about the idea of making sure that you've got your your core retail accounts you've done everything direct you know let's say you do go direct for a year or so and you've got I don't know, 70 retail retail accounts that you're really proud of, you can then take those anchor accounts and that's when you pitch to the distributor and have that compelling case by going and saying, add me to your book and you get all of all these 70 accounts that are really well nurtured, that are, you know, reordering on a regular schedule. Like it's a surefire win for your, your brokerage or your distribution business. And that's, Cameron, that's almost the same the same philosophy as pitching to buyers, right? Yeah, I think that that's that's kind of the way that you want to go about it. I think the focus on the retailer, uh, focus on building up your your relationship with those buyers, and then and then leverage those relationships with the the broker and distributor networks. Yeah, exactly. It's just like telling that buyer, I've got fifteen customers who want to shop at your store. You're telling that distributor, I've got seventy accounts that want to start ordering through you. Right, it's all about leveraging demands, and, yeah. and you know, we, I, I've had the the pleasure of working for one brand in my life, which you know was delighted by where you know it was easy to sell because we had Shark Tank and it was an unusual product, and it was you know it was just lightning in a bottle and it, and it worked really well. But for the rest of the brands that I've worked for and, and even outside of food and beverage, um, you know it's a slog and it's going to take a long time. And and anything you can do to position your brand and and to show demand for that product and show that um, the, the, the brand's actually going to succeed when it gets on the shelf, um, that's just going to better your case when pitching to that buyer. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there, Cameron. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of stuff already, and I want to take a quick break before we come back and talk about connecting with those buyers, talking about your brand story to them, and getting them to say yes to putting putting your product on their shelves. Let's pause for a second and then we'll be right back. I'm going to tell you a secret from my time as a grocery buyer. Buyers will only bring in your product line if they trust that you are going to bring high sales to your category. They don't care whether your product is the most delicious ever or made with local ingredients. They care about whether or not it's going to sell. How can you prove this to those buyers? With data. And that is why I love WeStock, and I wish it had been around when I was in my buyer role. WeStock has modernized the classic product request form, and it collects your fans and followers' enthusiasm into real data that you can use in your wholesale pitch. Buyers rely on numbers, and you can give them just that by collecting it with WeStock. Check them out at WeStock.io or find them in my show notes and use promo code FOODBIZWIZ for 25% off your first year. Okay, Cameron, we're back. So you and I did a recent webinar, and we agreed on this idea that so often brands don't realize that the story that wins over their consumers isn't the same story that wins over retail buyers. And you had this, you had this really great line about not being blinded by your own brand and not falling in love with your own brand. Can we pick up there? Can we talk about that that philosophy you have of the importance of not falling in love with your own brand? 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's kind of the biggest thing. And I, I I say that probably over and over again to the point where a lot of our WeStock brands probably get tired of hearing it for sure. But uh, I mean, we do probably, you know, five to six new brand demos a day. And, and we talk to a lot of founders and a lot of new uh, new brands and new products. And every single time I have a demo, I hear, you know, there's nothing else like this in the market. And yeah. like this, and if I'm hearing it every single day, I know the buyer's hearing that every single day. And it just it just kind of gets muted to the buyer, right? They're they're now numb to hearing that. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, Cameron, if someone started a pitch to me when I was a buyer that was like, hey, <laughs> here's my gluten-free cracker company and they're the most delicious gluten-free crackers you've ever had, I would literally roll my eyes. You know, everybody thinks their brand is the most delicious. Right, and it's not even it's not even that founder's fault, right? Because it's it's they're in they're in it, right? They've, yeah. they've taken the plunge. They've left, usually time usually they've left their really steady job, and now they're full time into into this hot sauce brand or granola brand or you know waffle batter brand, whatever it is, and they love it and they should love it. I mean, that's yeah, I hope they think they're the most delicious ever, but that's not how to win over a buyer, right? And I do that myself too. I mean, we do this, at the end of the day, we do the simplest thing in the world, right? We ask customers what they want. Like it's Mm -hmm. the old adage of the customer's always right. We just streamline that process. Uh, But I have, I mean, I have hundreds of conversations with people and a lot of people like, I'm the worst person to explain what we do because I overcomplicate it, right? I'm, I'm just in the thick of it every single day. And so a lot of the times that's what the brand brands will do, especially the founders, they're going to talk about their product. And the biggest thing is to understand that the story you're telling to the consumer um, is a lot different than the story that you're telling to that buyer. The, the story that you're telling to a consumer, it's fine to, to talk about your product. It's fine to sh- like let that love show through. It's, it's fine to, to really make them feel like, oh yeah, this person resonates with this product so much. I can only buy this product. This is why I support them. That's going to that's gonna resonate and tell a really strong story to that consumer. And that's what you want to focus on when you're face to face with that end consumer. But with with the buyer, it has to be a much different conversation. And it's really got to focus around, to me, two things. One, it's where's the category going? And then how does my brand fit into that story of, hey, this is where the category is going. And this is how my my brand's going to help you get the category where it's where it needs to be. And so that's so many times, and I'm sure you can speak on it too as a buyer, but I just don't think brands know enough about the category. They know a lot about their brand and their product and why they think it should be in this space Mm -hmm. and why they think it should succeed, but they don't know enough about the category and the competition and the current climate and understand, okay, this is why it should see because, you know, the deli department's trending in this way. Hummus hummus sales have been flat for this long, and I've got a product that's going to help jumpstart that. That's a lot better story than, you know, I absolutely love my product. This is why it's better. That just doesn't resonate with the buyer nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, the buyer's success is based off their sales numbers or the financials of that category, right? Like, were they able to increase margin or reduce spoilage or, you know, increase velocity or whatever it is that buyer is, that buyer's performance is based off those numbers. And so, you know, like you said, Cameron, if you come in with your product and you just say, here's my delicious granola, you know, the buyer doesn't care, right? They need to know, here's my delicious granola. And it's going to increase sales in the granola category by X amount because of this, this, and this. Um, I think Cameron, one of the things you said at the beginning with, I want to circle back to this, this 
chocolate and vanilla hummus example. And the idea you, you briefly touched on this, that delighted by was successful because they expanded the category rather than taking away from the red pepper and the garlic hummus sales. Can we revisit that idea and and explain what that means in, in case listeners didn't catch that the first time? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is people don't understand that at the end of the day, it's it's really like the buyer has to make a human decision, right? They've created a relationship with another brand. The relationship probably spans for a year or two. They most likely like the brand that's already on the shelf, um, but maybe sales are flat and they're looking for an alternative. So I think the bigger decision that the buyer is making is not necessarily like, do I want to bring on this product? Because most likely they like your product. They like you. They want to yeah. bring your product. They want to be able to do that for you and your brand. The, the harder decision they have to make is, who do I take off the shelf to make space for this product? And I don't yep. think brands spend nearly enough time understanding that. Yeah. And understanding that this is a decision that buyer is like, okay, I have to make, for your three products that fit in this space, I have to take away three products and take away someone's yeah. business. And the likelihood that that brand's ever going to get on my shelf again is pretty low. Oh, it's pretty much not happening. Right. It's, and so yeah. it's, it's, it's a very difficult spot for that buyer to be in. Yeah. But you need to be very sound on the fact that like, a few things, right? One, this is this is where the category is going. I'm going to increase the sales in this category, and I'm going to bring in new new consumers into this category that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. And then also, too, how are you going to support that buyer? Like, what what promotions are they looking for? What type of support are they looking for in terms of demo, free fills, everything that goes in line with with everything that it just takes to get on the shelf? Yeah. You need to be very dialed into that because if you can't support them and if you're not growing the category overall, then that decision to you know take that brand off the shelf and replace it with yours, it, it makes it easier for them to not slot your brand. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is exactly what we talk about in Retail Ready because I, I think, like you said, so often these brands think that that buyer is just making a decision based on the product alone or you know what the broad product is bringing to the category, but it's it's quite complicated. I mean, I, I remember going back and forth about which products to discontinue to make room for new products. And there's always that, I mean, I'll say, and like Byright was a special place, right? Like we had such strong relationships with our, our shoppers. And I knew that if I was going to discontinue something, I would then receive a flood of complaints about no longer stocking a particular brand. So every single disco was was a really, I don't want to say it was really stressful, but it was something that was really thought out and very a uh, very strategic decision for each category. Um, it's also too, I mean, there's, I mean, I think that there's a sat on, like if you make the wrong hire inside of your company, it actually yep. costs your brand, it costs your company, you know, three months worth of pay for that person, uh, like making the wrong hiring decision. So it's the same thing for you, right? If you've brought on a product and it fails, yes. not only for reflection on the brand, but also like you bought into that, right? So it's a, yeah. it's also like, oh man, I, I brought in the wrong product. Like I'm on the hook for this. It doesn't look great to my superior that I stocked this wrong item. So you're going to be very hesitant on the next item to make sure that they're going to be successful in that, um, you know, in that spot that they're taking over. So there's a lot of moving pieces. And I think it's not as black and white as, oh, that, that person didn't like my product. You yeah. just have to understand that there's a lot of things going into that decision. And the easier you can make that decision process on the buyer by pitching it from their perspective on this is where the category is going. And this is the support I can provide you. That is, that makes it a lot easier for, you know, you, Allison, the buyer to be like, yeah, let's bring it in. I, I believe you. Yeah, totally. I mean, at the end of the day, the buyer has to trust you and trust that you're going to deliver on the, on the promises that you make. 
Oh, Cameron, I feel like we like I just got a lot off my chest as a former buyer. <laughs> uh, this is a nice therapy session. It is. I'm like, I'm having flashbacks. It's, you know, I say it all the time that the, the buying role is is challenging. There are so many moving parts and there are so many things that that vendors don't realize that go on behind the scenes just to put a product on the shelf. Um, Cameron, I actually have a, it, it reminds me, I have an episode way back from the beginning of this podcast about why does it take so long to get on the retail shelf? And I'm going to link it in the show notes because I think it would be a great, a great episode for people to listen to, to really understand like, what are those steps that a buyer needs to take and why, why does it take so freaking long, even when the buyer says yes. So I'm going to link that. I'm going to link that in the show notes, but let's, let's keep moving. So so I understand, I'm totally on board with you, Cameron, that you've got to have a different pitch to the buyer than you do have to your, your target consumer, right? But what is, let's talk about what that, what that good pitch looks like. Like how, how do our listens actually pitch their products to retail buyers in, in an effective manner? Yeah, I think it's, it's being very concise, right? And I think yeah. nowadays it's, you know, we're, we're obviously, you know, discussing this and, um, you know, maybe when it airs, it's a little bit different climate, but right now it's very difficult to get in front of buyers, right? Yep. It's, it, we're doing it at WeSock, we're doing a couple of virtual presentations and it's, it's just, you know, buy, uh, brands are just excited just to have the opportunity to get in front of a buyer because it's so rare right now. So I think, especially when we get out, out of, um, you know, this whole pandemic situation, I think just continuing to be very thoughtful in the way that you approach the buyer is, is key and paramount. Um, there are so many ways to get a hold of, of buyers right now, but being very concise in your approach. And when you do have that opportunity to pitch them, understand what their needs are. I, I, the biggest thing you can do is there's you obviously probably know a brand that already got into that store. You already know what that what they're looking for in terms of free fill, slotting, support, promotions, pricing, margins, everything. Make sure that you just go into it, understanding and knowing everything about that retailer and that category. Because that's gonna that's gonna definitely allow you to succeed. Yes, you want to talk about your brand a little bit, and obviously your product and your passion, and set them up um, for that. Uh, the best part about this industry is you can always kind of rely on your samples and your you know the tasting and the back and forth. Try not to make it a really stuffy presentation and pitch, yeah. more of a conversation. Because uh, at the end of the day, you're breaking bread with a stranger, and it's it's the most familiar thing you can do with somebody. So do try to make it a conversation and really try to. Just, I always try to say, like, get to the next step. If your next step is getting the verbal yes, that's that should be the whole way that you craft your pitch. If the if the next step is figuring out who the distributor is that you need to partner with, if the next step is you know, getting the paperwork going, just get to the next step and get the conversation going. But I I think the thing is that the pitch part is the easy part, where ninety nine point nine percent of sales are lost is is the back end and the follow up. Mm -hmm. If you're not following up. Uh, and I think we talked about this in our webinar. Like I have, I have, you know, emails with buyers where there's maybe 15 or 20 emails just from me on a thread saying like, yeah. you know, we all know that I hope this email finds you well <laughs> in the starting line. It's like, and then it's like, there's so many memes about like, no emails ever found me well, please stop saying that. <laughs> well, I've never had a buyer say like, stop emailing me or like, leave me alone. Yeah. Um, Cameron, we talked about this a little bit on the webinar that we did together and I, I know you said this, if, if it's, if it's still okay with you, I'll link that webinar, the recording in the show notes too, because I think that it's, 
gosh, that webinar was about an hour long and we dive a bit deeper into some of these topics. Um, I think it would be yeah, so valuable for our listeners. Yeah. And, uh, and again, I think that's, that's just such a crucial component of it. Yeah. I mean, gosh, the, the follow the follow-up piece is key. I mean, I, I said this on the webinar, I still haven't gone back and, and found it, but this idea that, that, sales managers, sales teams drop leads every single week. And the, one of the most crucial things to landing that account is frankly to keep following up. Right. Yeah. And there's for the brands that are looking to hire salespeople, it's, you know, it's a really hard first hire to make Mm -hmm. uh, for a few things. One, we're usually very, um, charming and good interviewers. And so <laughs> like, it's very hard to weave your way through the BS sometimes. And you'll be like, yeah, that person's going to rock it and sell the, you know, sell the crap out of my brand. And it's going to be great. The biggest thing you can do is really hone in on their organizational skills, yeah. give them tasks, see how they are with, you know, filling out, um, you know, uh, um, you know, information and getting it back to you right away. Um, really key in on their organizational skills and how they manage their current customers and their same store growth portfolio. Because any any good salesperson can charm you and, and make you feel like, oh, yeah, this this person's going to get my product on the shelf and represent me in the best way. But like, I'm pretty introverted. I'm not like a very overly showman type of salesperson. Mm-hmm. The reason I open up doors and I view that I'm one of the better salespeople in this industry is just because I follow up and I create yep. a long-standing relationship with that buyer. It's, I mean, there's there's better pitch salespeople than me for sure, but there's nobody who's going to follow up and make sure that nobody falls through the crack. And, yeah. and that's really how you can differentiate yourself. Yeah. Oh gosh. I feel like you just dropped such a nugget of wisdom here that, you know, God, I love that idea that of course a salesperson is going to be excellent in a job interview. Like that is that's what they're primed to do, right? Sell themselves. Um, but yeah, making sure that they have the systems in place to to nurture those those pending accounts and making sure that they, those don't fall through the cracks is is may is more the more important thing to measure with that new hire. Absolutely. Yeah, and just keeping keeping honed in on category review schedule. Um, you know, it's those are kind of like uh, you know we can have a whole another conversation about you know how serious are you are, are those and, and should you reach out outside of category reviews but just making sure that you're doing the easy stuff yeah. uh, and not letting any of the low-hanging fruit um, you know kind of uh, drop without you knowing it and the biggest thing too is like one trade shows come back up you know everyone's always like you know I, I don't see the ROI off of a trade show I mean most of those things happen because you're not following up enough yep. after all those leads so follow-up is just kind of you know the best kind of success you can have when, when pushing your sales and, and finding a good salesperson. Yeah, I agree with you there. So I've got one last thing that I want to talk to you about Cameron. And I know that you are this master of data knowing that you co-founded WeStock. So you started WeStock based off this idea that buyers need data to say yes to brands. This idea that Buyers want to make sure that someone is going to come in and buy these products off the retail shelves. What other data are buyers looking for when they when they say yes to a product, or what are they looking to see in a in a buyer pitch? Yeah, so I mean, most of the data that they're going to be looking for is traditional what we call syndicated data, and so that's kind of come from two main players, and that's Spins uh, and that's Nielsen, and, and those are two great companies. And, and honestly, you know, we'll probably never match their data. Um, you know their data prowess, or the, or their size, or and what they can do with, with how many consumers they touch on a daily basis. But what they're really measuring is, 
if I'm Twix and I sell uh, a Twix bar at the CVS down the street, as Mars, the parent company, I can then go and see, okay, how many Twix bars did we sell? And they can they can go and see how many were actually scanned at the register and yep. see what that sell-through was at the store level. And so that's super valuable for a you know a target to be able to see, okay, well, what's your you know sell-through at Walmart or another region and be able to measure that and see, okay, wow, they're you know, they're 20% over the industry average. Let's bring in this product. Yep. The problem is, is when you're a smaller brand. Um, it really doesn't make sense for you to have a syndicated data if you don't have national distribution. Because if I'm a you know a small you know Lily Pop uh, Puff Seed like, and I'm in uh, New York and I'm in 50 stores, my sell through at the bodega across the street is not really going to tell anything to Target. Yep. So what we see in, in a lot of meetings is usually people are printing off social media uh, media data. So they're taking their Amazon numbers, they're taking their Facebook followers, they're taking their email list, and they're trying to cobble together some story to the retailer of like, hey, look, people want my product. Look yeah. at this tribe we've built. And so what we try to do is is really be able to tell a much clearer story of, okay, great, this is your tribe. And yes, this, these are your most early adopters, your most motivated customers, and they're going to support you at the store. But we really drill down on you know where do they shop? What products are they interested in? Uh, where do they live? And then we we can tell that you know target buyer, hey, within this one store in Minneapolis, there's 500 customers who would buy this uh, Lillipuff seed product, and that tells a much better story without cobbling it together from multiple different um, components like social media, your Amazon, your email newsletter, things like that. So when they're talking about data, they're always really talking about syndicated data. But when yep. you're a smaller brand and you don't have that the best thing you can do is use consumer demand data. And that's really what you want to show. Yeah. And, you know, let's talk about how much that syndicated data costs. It's just, I mean, in my mind, it's it's pretty unaffordable for emerging brands. Yeah. I mean, you're going to start probably around like ten dollars to $15,000. And that, that will allow you to basically pick a retailer and get yep. that report. Um, so you're not even going to be able to get really your full transparency in it. And, and given, honestly, how much it shows you, the, the price, once you get to a certain size, is worth it. Right. But it's just hard right. to justify that as a newer brand, um, for sure. So we're usually like the training wheels for, for like your, we're your first mm-hmm. data purchase. And the nice thing for us is we take your tribe and we turn them into, we like to say we take your followers and we turn it into new retail sales or new retail leads. Yeah. Um, the nice thing about us too is we've, we've captured close to 25,000 individual consumers now too. So we're also a really good platform to introduce your product to people. So like if you, are, if you want to get into Wegmans, but you don't have really a large customer base um, that shops at Wegmans, we can take our 3,000 Wegmans customers, introduce your product, see who's interested uh, and try to help you out that way as well. Yeah, I I think that you've you're really filling a need in the marketplace, Cameron, and I'm so excited to see where we stock goes over. I mean, you've you've done so much in the past year. I can only imagine how the growth is going to continue. Yeah, no, it's been fun. I mean, the lifeblood of kind of the company is our brand partners. Um, you know, it's just very fun to learn about new brands every single day, speak with different founders, um, kind of see these brands grow up and, and work with us. And so, I mean, we have a ton of work out of us, but it's just the the fun part of the day is just working with brands. And uh, that is definitely, you know, the most valuable and kind of uh, uh, the best part of my job for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll say we have, we have retail ready students who are members of WeStock and just rave about the experience with you. And then when I was on your webinar last week, it was, you know, it was hosted on your platform with your audience and the engagement was just great. It's, it's, I don't know. It, it is really heartwarming to see this community that you've you've built as you 
build a brand that's based off community. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, no matter what happens with WeStock, I mean, whether we fizzle out tomorrow or we <laughs> go on for great decades of success, it, uh, it was worth it just for the, like the, the relationships we make on the brand side. I mean, has is, is been just, has been super rewarding. And I think the the community and I, we're trying to figure out some really cool and creative ways to, to help leverage this community that we've built. Um, because it's kind of like, if we get, continue to grow this, I mean, it's going to be second to none to, to kind of other food, CPG and food and beverage communities that are out there. So it'll be very fun to continue to cultivate that and then see as how we can continue to add value to those brands. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So on that note, Cameron, how do people find you? Where do they stay in touch with you? Give us your contact info and I'll, I'll make sure to drop it all in the show notes as well. Yeah. So you can, uh, the best way to reach me is via email. Uh, you can reach me at Cameron at WeStock.io. Um, you do not have to reach me, uh, reach out to me about setting up a, a demo for WeStock <laughs> or info at WeStock. Like I have conversations all the time about with brands about other com- topics. I will not try to sell you on our product. Um, I'm happy to talk with any brand. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's usually where I have a lot of conversations with people. And then to learn more about WeStock, uh, just check us out, WeStock.io. Uh, happy to set up a demo and walk you through. And uh, it is free to join. Uh, so it, we do make it pretty painless for new brands to sign up. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you have the free to join feature. And then if people do decide that they're going to upgrade to the paid version, you've offered us a promo code for our Food Biz Whiz listeners that is $100 off your subscription. So I'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Cameron, thank you so much for being here. I I could talk to you all afternoon long. Um, I'm just, I'm so grateful for what you do in, in the food industry and the way that you're supporting emerging brands. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I got the newborn and the dog to be quiet for a full hour. So <laughs> I'm excited for that. But, uh, you know, I'm always, uh, always really um, intrigued about the things you're doing. And I appreciate, um, you know, now having you in this community and uh, look forward to, to watching you grow and continue to do what you're doing. So I appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Wizzes, thank you so much for joining Cameron and me today. And I hope that you gleaned a few valuable insights from our conversation together. So from here, make sure you find that recording of the webinar that I did with Cameron linked in the show notes, as well as his contact info and links to WeStock and that promo code for $100 off your subscription to their platform should you need that valuable consumer data that they provide. So now before we wrap up, I am curious, what was your biggest aha moment of today's show. Come continue the conversation with me in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group found in the show notes or at foodbizwiz.com. I can't wait to discuss today's episode with you and I'll see you over there in the Facebook group or right here next week as I discuss the key components to a successful virtual pitch because I know that you guys are doing a lot of those these days. Have a great week and stay busy. You hear it from your customers every day. I love your product. I wish this was sold near me. When are you going to be carried at my favorite local store? It is time to capture those customer interactions and put them to work for your brand. We Stock streamlines the product request process and helps get your brand on retail shelves faster by collecting data that is essential for your wholesale pitch. And you have heard me say it enough times by now to know that buyers love data. A pitch that is backed by data is always going to capture that buyer's attention faster than a pitch without it. Learn more about how you can use your fans' product requests 
to perfect your pitch at westock.io or linked in my show notes. And don't forget to use promo code FOODBIZWIZ for 25% off your first year. You're listening to Food Biz Wiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Ali Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. 